You're listening to First Things First, Haggai's message for God's people today, a verse-by-verse study of the prophecy of Haggai. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. Well, I hope you're in Haggai chapter 2 already. If not, find your way there. Haggai chapter 2, as we close out this sermon series that we've been in for the last four weeks that we've entitled, First Things First, Haggai's Message for God's People Today. Like I said, we're closing out the series this morning in verses 20 to 23 of chapter 2. I've tagged this text this morning, anticipating God's kingdom. Anticipating God's kingdom. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Um, As is usual for us, I'll invite you to read with me. I will read the even-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the odd-numbered verses. So Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And if you're able to do so, would you stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word? Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through to 23. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. The word of Yahweh came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. Please join with me as I pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Father of mercies and God of all comfort, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your good word. That Through it, we come to know your will for our lives. We come to know of your love and care for us. And through it, we are strengthened for the works of service you've called us to. As we open up your word, we pray that your word would dispel our darkness and shine your glorious light into our hearts as we hear its truth. May ears become eyes. May we see the beauty, the wonder, the glory of your plans for us and for all things. Father, we take a moment to pray for our brethren in Canada who have made the decision to meet without restriction. We especially remember your servants, Dr. James Coates, Pastor Jacob Rayum, and now Pastor Tim Stevens. They've had access to their facilities barred and are having to now find alternative places to worship. Father, we know that you've installed your King, your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And though the nations rage against him and his people, we know that he is Lord of all that he is king of kings, and that he will ultimately have all the victory. May our brothers and sisters north of the border know your nearness in this season, and may your word go forth in their midst and the power of the king for your eternal glory. And may that be the case even now as we open up your word. Be with us as we study. 
asking it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. I don't know about you, but I'm generally not the type to get excited about things before they happen. Some of you are like, well, no surprise there. Um, I mean, I'll enjoy them when they happen by all means, but I'm just not in the business of expending emotional energy about things I can't see. I think the two exceptions in my life have been when I got married and when we're expecting our son. <laughs> Anticipation is something that doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, I wonder if that's the case for anyone else in the room this morning. I mean, may maybe you're the polar opposite. You easily get excited about future realities. You, you know, you're the type who keeps timers and countdowns for everything. If I asked you how many days there were till Christmas, you could probably tell me. I don't know why you would care in the month of May, but apparently you do. <laughs> like, wherever you find yourself on that, axis of anticipation, as it were. There is one thing that we should all have marked off on the calendar, as it were. Uh, there's one event that we should all be eagerly awaiting for. I mean, there's one glorious reality we should be giving our time, talents, and treasures towards. That one thing, that one event, that one glorious reality is the arrival of God's kingdom. We find ourselves in this final prophecy of Haggai. It's been quite the spiritual journey, I hope, as we've seen God graciously deal with the obstacles to putting him first in our lives. Like I said, Haggai is, yes, a story about a building project, but if that's all you get as you read the prophecy of Haggai, you're going to miss out a bunch. As we're finishing up this morning, I want to take a moment and recap, kind of go back over what we've seen in your study guide there. I've put a little table, which I think will help to kind of visually explain what's happening in the prophecy of Haggai. We've kind of said that Haggai has this melodic line, this through line that runs through the book. Uh, that, that through line is this reality that God's priorities put first lead to God's blessing both now and for eternity. That's the through line through this book. And each of the four prophecies in Haggai all contribute to that through line. And I want to take a moment, just kind of summarize the three prophecies we've seen thus far. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, the problem that God addresses there was the problem of the people's apathy. There was a coldness towards God's work that had set in, an apathy, a disinterest. And we learned from that opening chapter that the first step to dealing with apathy, to putting God, uh, first things first with God, is to put off spiritual apathy towards God and his interests. Well, then we moved into chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And there the problem was an apathy, it was discouragement. The problem there was, as the people were laboring at this work, it didn't look very impressive, and their resolve to keep going was in danger of diminishing. And so we learned that as we put God's priorities first, He empowers us through the promise and His own power. And then last week, we were in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, as we thought about this subject of purity and impurity. 
The problem there was that the people were kind of double-minded and it was tainting their ability to serve in this work. And so God had to teach them and hopefully he taught us through his word that the pursuit of purity is a crucial part of the believer's walk with God. And that really is what we've seen in Haggai in a nutshell. That we've been, like I said, we've been on this journey that God is dealing with the things in our lives that would, as it were, stop us from wholeheartedly serving him. That would get in the way of our passion for him. Well, as we begin our descent and start to land the plane of this study in the prophecy of Haggai, we come to chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And this prophecy is a little different to the ones we've seen up to this point. There are a couple of unique features here that aren't in any of the other prophecies. First of all, this prophecy is addressed to just an individual. So did you catch that in verse 21? That Haggai was to speak to Zerubbabel. So far, we've seen this guy come up, and we've not really talked about him too much. We will in this message. But though his name's come up, it's always been in conjunction with other people. It's him and Joshua the priest, him and the remnant of the people. But now God speaks just to him. Secondly, this prophecy isn't really addressing a problem like all the other ones. In that regard, it's different from all the others. All the others were dealing with some kind of problem, but as far as we can tell, I mean, people have tried to surmise that there's a problem, but God doesn't explicitly say there's one like he does with the other three prophecies. And so it, the temptation is to kind of read this. Maybe you caught that as we're reading it. It can kind of feel as though this feels out of place. Like, how did this get here with everything else? But actually, I don't think it's out of place at all. I think actually the entire prophecy's really been heading to this particular point. To appreciate that, I've kind of done this a couple of times in our series already, but I want to do it again in a bit more detail. Uh, allow me to take you on kind of a whistle-stop tour of the Bible, if I can. Just I'm going to move very quickly. And I want you to kind of notice this theme, the theme of God dwelling with his people, because I think it's going to be important to understanding what's happening here. So start back with me all the way in Genesis. When the fall happens, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, there's this interesting little remark that Moses makes as he writes this account of man's earliest days. He says that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. It seems that this was a regular event because Adam and Eve knew he was coming at some point. That's why they tried to hide. Hmm, God spending time with Adam and Eve on a regular basis. Skip ahead to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 for the note takers in the room. God tells Moses to essentially build him a tent. That's what the tabernacle was. It was basically a really nice tent that God lived in. But it's interesting. He doesn't just tell Moses, build me a tent. He essentially says, build me a tent so that I can dwell with my people. In fact, at the end of Exodus... So 25 is the beginning of the building of this thing. When the thing's actually done, 
chapter 40, verse 34, God moves in the cloud, comes and it resides on this tent. God comes to move in with his people. Well, fast forward a little further. David wants to build God a house. God says, no, you're not the one. Your son will build it, though. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, God's word is fulfilled. Solomon builds the temple. And when he builds this temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, as the people get ready and they come to celebrate, the Bible says that the cloud of God's glory fills this temple. And it's so thick, it's so tangible that the priests are unable to minister. Well, unfortunately, due to the never-ending idolatry of the people, when you get to the book of Ezekiel, fast forward quite a bit, Ezekiel has a vision in chapter 8 where he sees the glory of God leave the temple. He abandons this place that was supposed to be his home. But when you get to the end of Ezekiel, you see the glory of the Lord fill this new temple and city that Ezekiel sees and the name of the place interestingly is called the lord or yahweh is there we'll skip over into the new testament and this theme of god dwelling with his people picks up in john's gospel so you read john chapter 1 and verse 14 and it says that the word who's already been described as god up to this point the word becomes flesh and literally your translations will say and dwelt among us it literally means the word there is to pitch a tent to tabernacle with. That's the, the word becomes that he tabernacles with us. An implicit connection is supposed to be made there when you hear it. Well, what's implicit becomes explicit in the next chapter, chapter two, where Jesus says that if you destroy, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John gives us a great editorial comment. He says, they thought he was talking about the temple. Actually, he was talking about his body. Now, fast forward a little more in your New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is called God's temple. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are being built into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. 1 Peter 2 says that as living stones we are, or I love how the King James Version puts it, as lively stones. We are being built up into a spiritual house. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also says that not only is the church corporately God's temple, but you as an individual believer is called God's temple as well. You're God's temple because the Spirit of God has taken up permanent residence in you. Finally, when you get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, in this new creation that John sees, there is no temple or tabernacle. Why? Because God finally as he intended to do all the way back in the garden, God finally lives unmediated. Now he doesn't need a priesthood. Now he doesn't need a particular temple. Why? Because he just lives with his people. I, I take us on that kind of whistle-stop tour through the entire Bible because I think it factors into this final prophecy. You see, the, the temple's being rebuilt and worship is going to resume, but there needs to be some perspective. Uh, why is all of this important? Why does God seem to care about a building in a desert corner of the Persian Empire at this point? Well, it matters because God has a kingdom purpose in mind. 
God has a plan for all things, and that purpose will extend far beyond Haggai and Zerubbabel's day and well into eternity. This temple, yes, it's important, but it's important because it serves a bigger purpose. Remember that melodic line? You know, God's blessing put first leads to God's blessing both now and for eternity. Well, here's the eternity part. Here is how God's blessing is going to extend well beyond Zerubbabel's day, well beyond the people's day, and into eternity. Can I give you the big idea for this final prophecy? Kind of complete the collection, as it were. Here's the big idea. The things this world values are passing away. Since that's the case, pursue God's kingdom purposes above all. The things this world values are passing away. Pursue God's kingdom purpose above all. I hope I'm not before you long this morning, but this text simply presents to us two contrasting realities that should help us in pursuing God's kingdom. It's going to put two realities in front of us, both of them true, but both of them contrasting. And the hope is that as you consider these two realities, my hope is that it will birth something of an anticipation in you for the coming of God's kingdom. Uh, Can I warn you just very quickly before we get into this message? This is going to be kind of Bible heavy. Uh, I'm going to, you may think every one of your messages are. Well, maybe, but this is going to be especially so. (laughs) If you're a note taker, this might be a good day to try and write some stuff down because I'm going to kind of throw a lot out there. But it's important I do this so that this prophecy makes some sense. So with that in mind, two contrasting realities. Let me give you the first of them. First one's this. the The kingdoms of this world are temporary. The kingdoms of this world are temporary. If you're going to properly anticipate God's kingdom, first thing you need to grapple with is the fact that the kingdoms of this world are temporary. Prophecy number four starts with the same marker that the first three began with. It's similar in that regard. You have a date. The word of the Lord came, verse 20, to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Well, we know what that was from the last prophecy, December the 18th, 520. Two in one day. And like we said, verse 21, this prophecy is spoken to this person called Zerubbabel. So God's explicit, verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. As I said, his name's come up a few times already in the book, but we haven't really said who he is. So let me give you a bit of a background, a bit of a biography as to who this man Zerubbabel was. Zerubbabel was from the royal line. He is the grandson of Judah's king Jehoiachin. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 24. Jehoiachin was not a good king. He was actually quite a bad one. So much so that it's on his watch that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon finally invades Jerusalem in 586. And King Jehoiachin is put in exile and a puppet king, his uncle, is put in place, King Zedekiah. So that was Zerubbabel's grandfather. Zerubbabel clearly had grown up in exile. In fact, his name has some connection to Babylon. So he's grown up in the exile. But when God um, brings his people back into the land, he's the one who leads the first wave of returnees from this exile. Small note, there'll be three waves of return over the course of about 50 to 60 years. So you have a first wave 
with Zerubbabel. Ezra, in about 50 years from now, will lead a second wave. And then Nehemiah, about 14 years after that, will lead a third and final wave of returnees. Now, given that Zerubbabel was of royal blood, his choice as, governor, as the governor under the rule of Persia would be a logical one. In fact, this is how the Persian Empire functioned. I won't bore you with the history of that. Suffice it to say that their thing was often to kind of have a policy of, if you work with us, we'll work with you. And so they would do stuff like letting people go from exile, go back to your lands, worship your gods. You know, we're not going to make the mistakes of all the other empires where we try to basically like run over you. No, you know, you live peacefully with us. We'll live peace peacefully with you. And so Mr. Robert Bulls made the governor make sense. And since he's the civil leader, it makes perfect sense that this prophecy about a kingdom would be directed to him. Well, let's get into the contents of it then. The prophecy begins on a note that should be familiar from, remember the second prophecy, verses 6 through 9? So verse 21, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. God said that already, and now he repeats it here. This language of judgment and upheaval is meant, designed to be terrifying. It's designed to communicate something of a fragility. You're supposed to read that and think, oh, this isn't good. This isn't just a polite nudge. No, this is a violent shaking. Can I pause and say that it's easy for us to think that this world, and when we talk about the world, we're talking about this system of things that is surrounding us not the physical planet or the people in it necessarily. It's easy to think that this system of things that we call the world will be around forever. It's never going to change. You know, people come and people go, but this will always be here. But God's word kind of tells us otherwise. Psalm 39 and 6 says, favorite chapter in scripture isaiah 40 verses 6 through 8 it says a voice was saying cry out another said what should i cry out here's a response all humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the lord blows on them indeed the people are grass you all should know this verse i quote it every week the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god remains forever this one this next one i want you to see tell me to first corinthians chapter 7 this one I want you to see with your own eyes. First Corinthians in chapter 7. If you know anything about the letter to the Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter 7 is the marriage chapter. Not First Corinthians 13. First Corinthians chapter 7 is the marriage chapter. Paul spends a great deal of time dealing with unmarried people and married people and how to navigate being married as Christians. My thought for a moment is to look at verse 29 through 31. Paul has been kind of speaking very heavily about the importance of marriage and what have you and basically saying look being married is not a sin he said there may be reasons why not being married is preferable verse 29 he says this is what i mean brothers and sisters the time is limited and not what he says so from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none Verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep, 
those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not own anything, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. Why would Paul say such very strange things? The married person should act like they're not married, but how? They're married. <laughs> the person who has money should act like he doesn't have any. The person who doesn't have money shouldn't care about it. Like, why, why, why does he say these things? Look at the end of verse 31. For this world, in its current form, is passing away. Now, again, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't. He's not. He's kind of being hyperbolic here. He's not saying that you shouldn't actually care about these things because he's going to talk about stewardship in chapters 8, 9, and 10 and the use of our rights and the use of our you know, liberties and what have you. He's going to talk about all of that. But Paul's point is a simple one. We recognize that this world isn't permanent. It's temporary. And if we recognize that this world is temporary, we should function like people who recognize this world is temporary. James makes the same point in James chapter 4, where he says, you know, don't be arrogant enough to just say, well, tomorrow we're going to do this, we're going to do that, you know, we're going to go engage in a business and make a profit. He says, no, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that. Why? Interesting. Same idea. He says that man is like a vapor. What is your life? It's like a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. God would have us to understand as we read his word that this world is not permanent. It's passing. It gets all too easy to become over-attached. It gets all too easy to get hyper-focused on this world. Perhaps if we bore in mind the final outcome, we would be a little more cautious about betting the house, as it were, on everything that this world offers us. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't invest in family and in careers and in education. You know, that doesn't mean we don't seek all the means we can to, you know, sensibly secure our futures. We don't, we're not saying that. The Bible has a lot to say about wise planning and decision making and all of those things. It just means that as we engage with these things, as we invest in these things, we invest with a very loose hand. We don't grip these things too tightly because we recognize it could all be gone in an instant. Coming back to the prophecy of Haggai, verse 22 kind of shows that this shaking in particular, while we can kind of generalize it, is very specific in nature. It's a shaking that's going to happen on two fronts. So verse 22 he says, I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. First and foremost, this shaking will be political. The thrones of kings and the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. When you read that word Gentile in the Bible, it just means everyone who isn't a Jew. All the other nations. So the powers of the nations will be toppled. Listen to how Daniel describes this. If you're taking notes, Daniel chapter 2 verses 34 and 35 and then verses 44 and 45. Daniel says this. He's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar after he, you know, kind of tests the, you know, astrological power of the day and says, I had a dream. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is, though. You need to tell me what the dream is. And then we'll find out if you're for real or not. Well, praise God, there is a God who knows all things. And he tells Daniel and his three friends. 
Daniel 2.34, as you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it. It struck the statue. Remember, he see, those of you who know the story, he sees the statue with the multiple metals. It says, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Jump now to verse 44. Here's the interpretation that he gives. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. You saw, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it. And it crushed the iron, bronze, fire, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation reliable. God says that an a, a day is coming when the political structures of this world, as it were, will be brought to nothing. But not only will there be a political upheaval, there's a military failure that comes as a part of this. So he says, again, verse 22, I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall each by his brother's sword. I wish I had more time to get into this, but as you read the Bible in the Old Testament, it's fascinating to see that one of God's favorite moves in judgment, as it were, is to make his enemies turn on each other. Anyone familiar with the story of Gideon and Judges? Judges chapter 7 with what I like to call the original 300. as they surround the camp of the Midianites and they break these pots with the torches in them. Confusion sets in and the Midianites start turning on themselves because it's dark and you have no idea what's happening. One of my favorite Old Testament stories, Second Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat is presented with a coalition of nations that kind of come up on him and he doesn't know what to do and God basically says, send out your praise team. Interesting military strategy. We'll see if it pays off. But send your praise team. And he obeys. He does it. And the enemies start to turn on each other. You don't need to turn there, but Isaiah 49 and 26, if you're taking notes, this is a very graphic way that God describes this. Isaiah 49 and 26. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's a graphic way to put it. <laughs> but that's how God operates. In redeeming and saving his people, at times his favorite method is to get his enemies to turn on themselves. The wicked all through the Bible often have a hand in their own downfall, and this is no exception. Now, as we talk about this shaking that God describes here in Haggai, we kind of need to nail some of this down a bit more specifically. Like, what is he talking about? Is this just a general discussion that's taking place here? Or does he have something rather specific in mind? Page two there of your study guide, I've kind of got a little box there. Three issues that I want to kind of address real quickly as we think about this shaking. What is this shaking in particular? First of all, when he talks about this 
shaking that's coming. What does he actually mean? Well, when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament has a phrase for this. The Old Testament refers to this as the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. I put a bunch of references there where this term, the day of the Lord, is used in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 3 calls it a day of storm clouds, a time of judgment for the nations. Joel 1.15 says it's a day of destruction from the Almighty. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 calls it a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. Joel 2.31, and you might want to pay special attention to this one because we're going to come back to it in just a second. Joel 2.31 describes that day like this. It says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, flipping over to the New Testament, Paul calls it a day of sudden destruction. When we read this here. The second thing we need to deal with is when will this happen? When will this happen? And this is why I think that this final prophecy extends way beyond Haggai's day and extends off into the future. Time. And listen to how Jesus describes the conditions prior to his return. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 through 31. Jesus says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Let me stop there for a second. What does that sound like? Sounds like what we just read in Joel 2.31, doesn't it? And Matthew 24, is in, let me pause for a second and say, Matthew 24 is a very interesting passage of Scripture because Jesus seems to kind of zoom in and out on 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he takes a step back and starts talking about the end of the, end of the world, if you will. And this is one of the sections where I think he's talking about the end of the world because look at verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the people of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. I would argue that this shaking that Haggai is referring to is referring to this final end time shaking that will take place prior to the return of Christ. Can I pause and say, Christians get real touchy when you start talking about this subject. I, I, I don't know what your experience has been when Christians start talking about Jesus' return. During or after the tribulation, is it premillennial? Is it postmillennial? Is it amillennial? Is it pan-millennial or just pan out in the end? 
Oh, that joke normally works, but it didn't this time. Okay. Um, you know, it is all the stuff about prophecy in the Bible, past, present, future. Christians can kind of fight for hours about this. But can I put it to you that I think if you just read the Bible and allow it to speak for itself, a lot of this stuff is actually made quite simple. People, as they often do, tend to complicate this subject. I don't think the subject is that complicated. Jesus says that prior to his coming, there will be some kind of cosmic event that will be visible. People will see it. And immediately following that event will be the appearance of the Son of Man for his people. So when is it, what is this shaking in particular? It's the day of the Lord. When will it happen? Prior to Christ's return. Why will this shaking happen? Well, you read the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that this idea of the day of the Lord, it's a day of judgment for God. People experience salvation. Okay, let's come back to Haggai. Brief excursus off into this subject over. Why does Haggai talk about this? Why here and why now? <laughs> well, think back with me through the last few weeks in Haggai. The people have been apathetic, discouraged. They've been in two minds. All of that, I would argue, flows out of the fact that their focus has been on themselves and their present circumstance. By reminding them that the day of the Lord is coming, Yahweh is showing that even the hard things that threatened to derail their focus weren't going to last. Even if it didn't get better for the people in the here and now, they just needed some perspective. Zerubbabel, as the leader of the people, needed some perspective. All that opposes God will one day come crashing down. And just in case we need that encouragement, can I remind you of what John says in his first letter, 1 John 2, 17? He says, the world... And its form is passing away. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. In fact, that's the reality I want to talk to you about next. So we've talked about the kingdoms of this world being temporary. But secondly, the kingdom of God is eternal. The kingdom of God is eternal, verse 23. While the kingdoms of this world are temporary, God's kingdom will be here When God pours out his judgment on an unbelieving world, on that day, way beyond Zerubbabel's day and the project to rebuild this temple, on that day, God says, this is the declaration of the Lord of Armies, verse 23, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of Yahweh of Armies. That's one sentence in the original language, but it's loaded with so much meaning. Can I take a moment and kind of unpack it? 
First of all, you need to understand that God is talking to and through Zerubbabel at the same time. By that I mean he's talking to him, yes. But this prophecy is more than is about, excuse me, more than just him. So yes, God is speaking to him, but he's not just speaking to him, he's speaking through him to those who will come after him. I clue into that from the two words that follow the after God calls his name. So notice he says, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. If, you, if you've read the book of Isaiah in any detail, particularly chapters 40 through 55, there is this character who appears who's called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. That's a messianic title. This one who will accomplish God's will on his behalf. Yes, Zerubbabel will kind of be a precursor to that. But if I can put it to you, he's the warm-up for the greater servant who will come, who will fulfill God's will perfectly. Here's how one writer puts it, quote, The prophecy is primarily messianic. In other words, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will administer the purposes of God when he comes back to reign. The term, my servant, belongs to him in a unique way. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. He alone is the perfect servant who brought infinite pleasure and glory to God in his devoted service on earth. So in John chapter 17 and verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. He alone could say, John 8, 29, I always do those things that please him. And of him alone could it be said, he has done all things well, end quote. Yes, like I said, God is speaking to Zerubbabel, but he's speaking through him to this ultimate servant, the Messiah himself. The second thing that kind of clues me into the fact that this is more than just a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel is this language of the signet ring. Did you, did you catch that there in verse 23? It says, I will take you and make you like my signet ring. Signet rings in the ancient world were symbols of personal authority. Like the name kind of suggests, it's what kings would use when they signed official documents. You poured down some wax, this ring had some indentation in it, so embossment, excuse me, you would press down this ring into the wax, and it functions like your personal signature. When you saw that seal, you knew who it was. And so kings didn't mess around with their signet ring. It was proof that they were part of the royal line. Here's where this gets really interesting. Remember I mentioned Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiachin? We'll just call him Jay for short. God had used this picture... in reference to Jehoiakim's family. You don't need to turn there, but Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30, I'll read it. This is Yahweh speaking. He says, as I live, this is Yahweh's declaration. Though you, Kaniah, son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear it from you 
In fact, I will hand you over to those who you dread, who intend to take your life, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who gave birth to you into another land, where neither of you were born, and there you will die. They will never return to the land they long to return to. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, shattered pot, a jar no one wants? Why are he and his descendants hurled out and cast into a land they have not known? Earth, earth, earth. Hear the word of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. Record this man as childless. By the way, he wasn't childless. He had kids. But he was to record this man as childless, a man who will not be successful in his lifetime. None of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This language of the signet ring, I can only imagine that Zerubbabel heard this and was quite pained by it because it reminded him No doubt he knew this, that God had said, I'm removing the signet ring from your family. God had withdrawn the right to rule from his father and grandfather. Here, God is announcing a reversal of fortunes. Where the line of David, you know, the one that God promised back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, said that David would sit on the throne forever, we'll read it in just a moment. Where that line looked unsure, God basically says, no, it's sure, it's good, it'll be fine. In fact, you read Matthew chapter 1, and Zerubbabel's mentioned there. You know, the genealogy that we all kind of skip past and try to get to the good stuff in Matthew. Well, don't. Actually, that serves a really important purpose. One of which is demonstrating that Jesus is the king that is promised going all the way back to David. And Zerubbabel's name is in that list. A third thing that tells me that this is more about more than just about Zerubbabel is this language. See it there at the end of verse 23? For I have chosen you. Ultimately, this kingdom promise is a gracious promise. Zerubbabel isn't the recipient of this by birthright. It's not that he's a fundamentally righteous man. It's not that he comes from a highly religious line of people. We, um, again, we didn't read it, but 2 Kings chapter 24, he gets removed from office because he's the polar opposite of a godly man. God deposed his grandfather for being horrible. No, this was about God fulfilling his promise to his friend David, who himself was from an unlikely background as king. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses, 2 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me, verses 12 and 13. God says, when speaking to David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jump down to verse 16. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever ultimately Zerubbabel is Zerubbabel is going to be part of the line through which Messiah himself comes and his reign won't just be a little governorship in a tiny corner of the Persian empire his reign the bible tells us will be global As if that isn't good enough, here's the, here's the good news for us as God's people. The Bible makes it clear that we will enter into that kingdom, which I believe the Bible teaches is going to be a renewed earth, 
that we will rule and reign on on this earth. Paul says we will enter that kingdom by grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, since then we are receiving a kingdom. We are in the process of receiving a kingdom. Let's worship God with reverence and fear. While the kingdoms of this world are passing away due to the rejection of the Lord and his Messiah, we are headed to a kingdom that has been promised to us that we did nothing to earn, but we will receive with great joy. In a lot of ways, this is where this prophecy has to land. It has to end here. Beyond present circumstances, beyond present difficulties, beyond the labors that the people had to go through, God looks past all of that and looks forward to the glorious fulfillment of all his promises. This prophecy starts in the here and now, but it looks right into our eternal home. And so we can anticipate God's kingdom, this kingdom that will be eternal. And here's the beautiful thing, even in the here and now, we can rest in that king's work for us. Because the Bible teaches us that though he was indeed a king, this one who would be Lord of all entered into our creation. He took on human flesh, lived a life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved, went to the cross. And in going to the cross, he purchased millions with his blood and that all who repent and believe will find forgiveness in him. That as he told even the thief on the cross, you remember it? Tells the thief on the cross, today you will be, the key. remember the thief on the cross, he asked him, before I even get to that point, the thief asked him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, when the kingdom comes, you'll enter it. He says, no, 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 today you'll be with me in paradise. Yes, we await the arrival of God's kingdom, but even in the here and now, we partake of the blessing. Eddie and I were talking about this yesterday, that in God's great blessing, we get to experience the powers of that age to come in the here and now. This is exactly where this prophecy needs to end. Not with the apathy, the discouragement, and the impurity, but with the good news of God's plan to make all things right through his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are indeed receiving a kingdom. That we are receiving a kingdom, as Hebrews 12 tells us, that cannot be shaken that we are receiving a kingdom that is permanent, that will be unmoved by the happenings of this life. And so, Father, that gives us great hope. It gives us great comfort. Father, I pray that it would give us great zeal to serve you, knowing that we don't labor in vain. Father, thank you so much for all that you've taught us as we've studied through this prophecy of Haggai. I pray that this will not be the end of our time in this book, but for some, it may be the beginning of a time in it, digging deeper into it and studying its truth. Father, we thank you so much. Asking these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen. Well, beloved, would you stand with me as we sing our closing song this morning?